If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out and go straight to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to get right into it today because we have a lot to talk about, and I'm not one for uh, pleasant intros. Um, but let's go ahead and read uh, four verses together, and then I'll set the stage for you and, and kind of tell you where we're going to go. We're going to look at uh, verses 14 through 18 today, and you'll see exactly what I mean when I talk about what we just sang and, and what we're going to be talking about today. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, uh, we've got them in the lobby. So please take one. They're free, and uh, we'd love you to leave with one of those. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We're still at the very beginning of our series uh, through this Gospel of John. If you're new, if you haven't been here in a while, it's okay. I think we're like three weeks in. Uh, all of the others are on the website. Uh, but basically, this, this series is, is something that we're calling the fullest because the entire book is one big invitation into life and life to the fullest, as we see in John 10, but really throughout the entire gospel. And it's like said explicitly at the very end when John gives the thesis for the entire book. He says, these things have been written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you'll have life in his name. Now that word life, as we saw earlier, is, is the Greek word zoe. Zoe is, is translated most often in our English Bibles, eternal life, but it really should be literally translated life to the fullest, or to really live. One of the most important aspects of experiencing and enjoying life to the fullest in Christ for you and me today is really this idea that we have been invited to rest in, be consumed by, and captivated by the glory of God. There's a lot in this paragraph, and we're going to talk about some more of it next week, but today, all I want to talk about is glory. The fact that every single one of us were built for glory. We're wired for glory. Our hearts were designed to crave something that's beautiful or valuable or that's uh, magnificent. Uh, we long for splendor and majesty. Last year, Caroline and I got to go to a marriage retreat in Vail, Colorado. It was with our network, Acts 29, and they made it really cheap for pastors and their wives to get out there. And so we're in these mountains, and we'd never been to Vail before, but if you have or you know anything about it, it's just beautiful. And one of the nights, uh, we were like, you know what, before dinner, let's just go for a little hike up one of these mountains, and let's take in some views, and it's going to be awesome. We didn't know it at the time, but Caroline was pregnant. Um, and so we thought hiking was a great idea. It wasn't. We thought the altitude would be bearable. It wasn't. We thought the hike was only going to be a mile because that's what we had been told. It wasn't. It was over six. And so we're just hiking up 
these mountains and we're like, we got to be getting close. Like we've got to be getting close. Can't breathe. I'm like chugging along. Caroline's really struggling. Like why, why, we don't understand why she's struggling. We, we later realized it's because she was pregnant. Um, and we're really struggling. Halfway up the mountain, we see this sign that says like three more miles. And we're like, we were supposed to be there two miles ago. And all these people are coming back down the mountain. And we're like, are we almost there? And they're like, nope, we've got a long way to go. But it's worth it. Keep going. And so by this time, we're halfway up. We're like, we have to, we have to just keep going. We have to plug through this. And I'm like trying to encourage her with like every spiritual analogy I can possibly think of about, you know, one foot in front of the other. And you've got to hike up the mountain to see the view and all. It wasn't helping at all. But we made it. We got some water because we didn't pack any water, and uh, we just chugged out of that water fountain. And then what did we do? We enjoyed these breathtaking, like sweep you off your feet views of Vail, Colorado. And then the best thing about the top of this mountain is they had a roller coaster. But it wasn't like a, a roller coaster like Carowinds. It was like this makeshift, dingy-looking thing, like just track of steel that just wound all the way like down maybe a mile or so of this mountain. It was totally propelled by gravity. And you just sat in this car with no belt, no anything, and you're just in this cart, and the only thing you can do is pull a lever back to brake if you're too scared. Or you can just leave it open and be like thrown down this mountain. And they have nets like on the side of the track. So if you get like thrown out of your car, I guess you land in these nets. And I'm literally like, you're sitting in this cart and you're just being thrown into every turn and with every, you think you're gonna die. But you're being invited to not just like witness the mountains and see the mountains, but to like experience them in this unique way where you're actually just plummeting down. And when I'm scared or when I'm excited, I don't scream. I laugh like a little girl. And <laughs> Caroline was laughing so hard because she, we got, we had to take, like, you, you ride in your own little car and then you get back up. And she's like, I heard you giggling down the entire mountain. <laughs> it was awesome. It was totally worth it. That six plus mile walk that we weren't anticipating was what the Bible calls glorious. It was full of splendor and majesty, and we were just caught up into it, and we were a part of it in a real, tangible way. It doesn't matter if it's a mountain view. It doesn't matter if it's the greatest roller coaster ever for all of you thrill seekers out there. It doesn't matter if it's the first snow of winter, which I'm really hoping we get at some point. I mean, maybe we get some snow. It could be something as small as a perfectly crafted latte, you know, with the design in it, and it's so sharp, and it's so crisp, or it could be like the best cooked burger, and it's so awesome, you have to get your phone out, and you have to take a picture, and you have to share it, because it's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's glorious. It could be an athlete competing at the highest level, breaking all of the records. I'm not a baseball fan, as you know. <laughs> um, but early on in life, I was. In the steroid era, when baseball was good, I was obsessed with baseball. I can still remember, as a little boy, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, Mark McGuire going after that home run record. You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, we didn't have cable. We didn't have any of that stuff. But every night, 
that game was on or that news was on and we were watching to see who's going to break the record. That's glorious. That's greatness. And we got to witness greatness. I, I don't really have a team in any sport except for soccer. I'm not going to bore you with that. But I love watching greatness. So I root for LeBron James. I root for Tom Brady. And you can hate me for that. But it's because they are the GOATs. Okay? And we can argue later, they are the greatest of all time. We were made to witness and to love and to long for glory. Inside every single one of us, there is a deep desire to be caught up in the spectacular, to have our breath taken away by something brilliant, to have our sweet, our feet swept up out from under us by something truly amazing or out of this world. And so you could say that our lives are defined by chasing glory. This is why, again, when you experience something glorious, we, we praise it. You share it. You want to invite other people into your joy of experiencing it. And that's why we take pictures of mountain views and snowflakes falling from the sky and perfect lattes. And if you bump into a random celebrity on the street, you will take a selfie because they're great and you want to be next to them and you want other people to see that you were next to them. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You feel that, right? Preaching to the choir. Here's the really important thing that you and I have to understand. Since we were built for glory and since our hearts naturally crave glory, we will spend our entire lives chasing something to satisfy it. To fulfill it. In other words, our entire lives will be shaped by the pursuit of some kind of glory. Look at how Paul David Tripp put it in his book, Awe. If there exists within each of us a hunger for glory, then one could argue that everything we think, desire, say, and do is done out of a quest for glory. The problem, though, is that every experience of glory that this world has can't satisfy our longings because every experience of glory is transient. It always fades away. You leave the mountains. The snow melts. You drink the latte and the perfect little Christmas tree's gone or the heart or whatever's in it. The, the game ends. The band leaves the stage. The roller coaster only lasts about 20 seconds. It's all fleeting. And here's the thing that hurts the most. The better our experience of glory is, the harder it's going to be to duplicate it in the future. Because we're always going to have to top it. If you see someone hit 70 home runs in a season like Barry Bonds did, he was my favorite, you're not going to be impressed by 65. Someone is going to have to top it in order for you to be enraptured by that achievement again. If you ride the coolest roller coaster in the world, you're not going to be able to go to Carowinds <laughs> and ride one of those things and be swept off your feet. The better our experience of glory is, the harder it's going to be to ever experience glory in a satisfying way again. I watched a documentary not too long ago about an endurance runner uh, from Italy. He was a pentathlete in the Olympics. 
and he decided to run this endurance race in the Sahara Desert. It's on Netflix if you watch the Losers series. It's, it's there. Um, don't waste your time on Netflix. Watch documentaries. Learn something, okay? <laughs> um, but he, uh, he got lost. There was a, a sandstorm, and he got off track, and he was lost in the Sahara Desert for like nine or ten days. I can't remember. Had, had no provisions, no food. He's trying to eat like lizards and, and insects. He actually found um, a, a rundown, abandoned, I guess, like church with uh, skeletons in it <laughs> and, um, and ate bats there. He did all kinds of things to survive. He actually tried to end his life because he didn't think he was going to make it and it didn't work. So then finally he gets found. He gets this hero welcome. He is all over the news and everything. And it's, it's a really powerful story. But the thing that really stood out to me that would totally surprise you is that after he got rescued and, and he was brought back to reality and, and safety, you would think that he'd never do anything like that again. But the opposite was true. So much so that he left his wife and his kid behind so that he could chase the glory that he had found in the Sahara Desert. Because once he'd experienced that daily life, marriage, parenthood, it didn't match what he experienced there. It's a really tragic story, but it's a picture of all of us, every single one of us. And our desire to be wrapped up into something that's bigger than ourselves. It's, it's easy to look at a guy like that and see the futility of his efforts. How is an endurance race in the Sahara Desert going to fill that glory void in you? And yet what we have to understand is that that is what every single one of our lives are like when we chase glory and transient things. We're caught up in awe of the presence of something glorious, and it's awesome, and then it's back to reality, and the moment fades, and then it's back on the chase. And it's an endless cycle. Experience glory, glory ends, chase glory. Experience glory, glory ends, chase glory. And it never, ever stops. That's the human condition. It's a life of futility, not life to the fullest. So what's the solution? Well, it's really simple. And you're in church, so you know the answer. If we were made to crave glory... And at the same time, none of the glories of this world can ever satisfy our cravings. Then there must be a greater glory outside of this world that we're meant to experience and enjoy. In other words, if we want contentment, we have to look beyond creation. This is what Ecclesiastes is all about. Ecclesiastes is all about. He said explicitly when he wrote that God has put a sense of eternity in our hearts so that we know in all of our attempts to find satisfaction and joy and peace and glory in this life, we've got to get outside of this world to find it. Only God can satiate our hunger and quench our thirst for glory. Because like every other glorious thing, he never ends. He never fades. He is not transient. His splendor will never be diminished and his majesty will emanate from him for all eternity. So, what we need more than anything in our pursuit of life to the fullest is a clear vision of the glory of God. If we want to live the good life, in Jesus' vision of the good life, 
start experiencing eternal life here and now or that word zoe, we need to see God's glory. But there are two really massive problems inside of each and every one of us that keep us from seeing the glory of God. Or two reasons that we constantly chase lesser glories instead of the ultimate glory of God himself. And this is what I want to unpack and show you in our text today, specifically in verse 14 and verse 18, how Jesus came to solve these problems. But our first problem, the first reason that we can't see the glory of God is first that our vision is too cloudy. Our vision is too cloudy. God's glory is literally everywhere in creation. Numbers 14.21 says, The glory of the Lord fills the earth. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah 6.3, in his vision of heaven, everyone's singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's everywhere. In other words, every created glory that we've ever experienced, that we've ever loved, is a sign or a pointer to the glorious creator who exists behind it. They're all things that are meant to stir up our imagination and capture our hearts with awe so that we'll look further and deeper into the one who created them. Isaiah 40 uh, tells us that he weighed the mountains in a scale and behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket to him. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. In other words, he is the God behind the mountain view. He is the God that causes the snow to fall and compels the sun to rise and set. But the problem is that our eyes don't see him. All of the glories of creation were meant to be signs pointing to the glories of the creator, but we don't ever make it to the final destination naturally. We stop at the signs. It's as if we're climbing up that mountain in Vail, Colorado, okay? And we see a sign that says, Mountain View, three miles. And we're like, sweet, let's hang out at the sign. Let's have a picnic here and enjoy the the wording on this sign. Look at the fonts that were used. Look at the typography. Look at how it was laid out on this wood and it's rustic yet modern. And What an amazing sign. And then we just go back down. <laughs> we never make it up that three miles to the mountain view. Or imagine that you're on a road trip to the Grand Canyon and you're driving down the highway and you see one of those big green signs on the side of the road that says Grand Canyon, 60 miles. And you're like, yes, we're so close. And you pull off to the side of the road and, and you park right next to that green sign and, and all of that food that you had packed for the Grand Canyon, you just lay your blanket out and you get your guitar and you sing your songs and you hang out and you chill and all of that. And then you go home. Ridiculous, right? It's silly. Seeing the sign and celebrating the sign without ever getting to the destination it's pointing to makes no sense whatsoever. And yet that was our existence before Christ. All we could do was see the signs, see the mountains and say, wow, that sign is amazing. All right, let's go home. Wow, that, that roller coaster was the best thrill I've ever experienced. Okay, let, let's go home. Without ever looking beyond it, to the God it pointed to. And so then never being satisfied when it came to an end. 
See, our vision is so cloudy, or was so cloudy, that we're actually blind to the reality that there is greater glory behind everything we see, everything we taste, everything we touch, everything we experience, even the smallest things, like a burger. As glorious as burgers are, what if, what if really good food, just think about whatever your favorite food is, because some of you hate burgers, some of you are vegans and you're like mad at me right now. Um, <laughs> like just think about whatever your favorite food is, the lunch you're gonna have after church today, as amazing as it is, what if you could enjoy that knowing that it was pointing to a greater pleasure and a greater glory beyond it? How much would that enhance your joy and the littlest things and your, your littlest, most mundane experiences of life? And yet, without Christ, we can't do that. Again, to quote Paul David Tripp, it's the worst kind of blindness it's the physical ability to see without the spiritual ability to really see what you've seen. It's the capacity to look at wonders, things specifically designed to move you and produce in you breathless amazement and not be moved by them anymore. It's the sad state of yawning in the face of glory. To stand in the middle of wonders and be bored out of our minds to have eyes that work well, but hearts that are stone blind. To see everything and at the same time see nothing. So we have a huge problem and what we need more than anything else is for Christ to come and take the scales off of our eyes so that we can see. What we need more than anything is to be introduced to the God of the universe. And that's why our text in John 1 is so significant because what it shows us is that that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Look back at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is Christ, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now that phrase made him known comes from the Greek word exe gomai. It's terribly hard to pronounce, um, which in the secular culture, uh, the Greek culture actually was used to talk about interpreting the divine. Whenever someone tried to explain or interpret dreams or visions or oracles or signs, they used that word because it meant to make the sacred or to make the divine known. It's the same word that we get our word exegesis from which is what I try to do every Sunday when I preach. I try to exegete the scriptures or explain the divine to you in a way that, that makes sense and gets you excited to go out Monday through Saturday and live in light of it. My job is to open your eyes to the reality of God as it's revealed to us in scripture. That's what this word means. One of my favorite stories of all time is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Um, if you've read the story, you've seen the movie, you know that it begins with a little game of hide-and-seek between two brothers and two sisters, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy. And Lucy's the youngest, and she's running around the house trying to find a place to hide. And all of a sudden, she sees this wardrobe. 
and it's mysterious and it's a little bit scary, but it's the perfect hiding spot. And so she climbs in it and there's, you know, just fur coats everywhere. And so she's making her way further and further back into the wardrobe until all of a sudden she's not in a wardrobe anymore. She's in a magical new world called Narnia. It's a brand new reality. Later on, she takes her brothers and sisters through the wardrobe with her, and they embark on one of the greatest adventures of all time. Now, the amazing thing about Narnia, and the the reason I bring it up, is that Narnia was this magical world. It was a supernatural reality that existed not far off. It, It wasn't distant. It wasn't really removed from them. It was right next to them, but they couldn't see it until they went through that wardrobe. They had no idea what was behind those doors until they walked through that closet. In a lot of ways, guys, that's what Jesus is for us. Whether you call him a wardrobe or a door or a window, he is our means into this divine reality that there is a world beyond what we can see. It's a magical world. It's a supernatural world where there are angels and there are beings and authorities and rulers in the cosmos and it's, it's not far off. It's not distant. It's not in a galaxy far, far away. It's right next to us. And so Jesus becomes that door for us and he reveals it to us. He opens our eyes, as it were, to the glory that's all around us. The fact that God literally fills all things with his glory. And he awakens us to it. Our vision is cloudy. We have scales on our eyes. But the first thing that John wants us to see about Jesus' coming to the earth is, is that he came to give us a new vision. No one has ever seen God. But Jesus, who is at his side, he has made him known. In other words, he's taken the scales off our eyes. He's given us a new vision of reality. So now, we can actually see and savor the glory of God in all things, whether it's a burger or a latte or a mountain view or a walk in the woods or a bonfire or whatever. We can see and savor the glory of God in everything. But that's not all he came to do because our problem wasn't just that our vision was too cloudy to see his glory. We had another problem that was even greater than blindness. And that was the fact that our hearts were too sinful to stand in the presence of his glory. Our problem wasn't just that we couldn't see his glory. Our problem was that we couldn't handle it even if we saw it. So much so that when Moses asked God if he could see his face, God said, no, <laughs> because if you see my face, you're a dead man. Look at, look at this story in Exodus 33. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you will hide. You'll stand in the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I'll take away my hand and you'll see my back, but my face will not be seen. Guys, I want you to just feel the weight of this scene right here. Moses was the greatest prophet who has ever lived. In fact, when when the Old Testament talks about the Messiah who's going to come, it it talks about the Messiah being the greater Moses, who is the greatest prophet. He's the one who spoke with God in a burning bush, who saw those 10 signs in Egypt that were just unbelievable as God liberated his people from bondage. He's the one who saw the parting of the Red Sea. He was actually a part of that. He didn't just see it. He raised his staff and God parted the Red Sea. He's the one who walked under the cloud of glory and that pillar of fire in the wilderness. He's actually the one who received the law from the mouth of God on Mount Sinai. When he came down, his face was glowing. That guy wasn't allowed to see the fullness of God's glory because he couldn't handle it. So he was given a small glimpse. Later on in 2 Samuel 6, 6-7, a man named Uzzah reached out and he grabbed the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where the glory of God resided, where it took up residence and God killed him on the spot. There's another example of God's inaccessible glory in Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. Read with me. In the year of King, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim are these like terrifying angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now look at this. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, God's glory was so magnificent that even the seraphim don't look at him. They have wings so that they can cover their eyes and wings so that they can cover their feet to show humility so that while they're flying, they don't get killed by the glory of God. And then this prophet Isaiah at the sight of this majestic and profound vision of God's glory, falls on his face and cries in despair. Finally, just one more example. Revelation 1, 12 through 17. This is written by John, whose gospel we're reading right now. He said, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. Again, I want you to grasp the weight of what's going on here. The Apostle John wasn't just one of Jesus' 12 closest followers. He was a part of the inner circle, the inner three, Peter, James, and John. But he wasn't even just a part of the inner three. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, scholars have, have realized through all of their study that when John started following Jesus, he was 12 years old. He's a boy. This is the one that Jesus loved. If Jesus had a best friend while he was on earth, it was John. And now John gets a vision of Jesus in glory in heaven. And he turns around and the first thing he does, his first reaction is not to jump in his king's arms and hug him and embrace him. His first reaction is to fall on his face as if he is dead. See, our problem is that we were created to experience and enjoy the glory of God to physically bask in his splendor, spiritually, emotionally, mentally rest in his presence, to be consumed by him, to have our hearts ravished by him. And yet our hearts are too wicked to gain access to it. So Isaiah cries, woe is me. And John falls on his face as though a dead man desperate for access. It's not just that we're blind to it and need Christ to open our eyes. It's that we are unable to bear it and need Christ to give us access and most importantly, grace to possess it and partake in it. Which again is why John's words are so profound in our text today. Look again at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, dwelt among us, is a rare term in the Greek, and it's only used one other time in the whole New Testament. It literally means to fix one's tabernacle, or to tabernacle, or to take up residence. And this is really important because in Exodus, this is how the people had access to God. Even though it was limited, it was through the tabernacle. Look at Exodus 40 with me, and it shows us exactly why this is so significant. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see, for the Israelite people... The tabernacle wasn't just some random tent in the camp. It was God's tent. He had become their next door neighbor and his glory resided in their midst in the tabernacle. He took up residence among them. They witnessed his glory at a safe distance, not coming too close because if they came too close, they're going to die. But his glory is there and they worshiped him as his people. Then when they finally get to the promised land, they don't have to have a tent anymore. Solomon builds this amazing temple. 
and deep within the temple, in the safest place possible, they build a room, and they call it the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where the ark of God's glory is going to reside. And then they put this massive curtain in front of the Holy of Holies so that men and women wouldn't accidentally come in contact with this ark of glory and be killed. But his glory was there in the temple. And once a year, one man and all of Israel, actually really the whole world, got to enter the Holy of Holies, the high priest. And this man spent months cleansing himself, confessing sin, making his own sacrifices for himself so that one time a year he could enter the Holy of Holies and make sacrifices for the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement. He had to do all kinds of preparation. He had to wear special robes and special garments. But this is the thing. It was so deadly. It was so dangerous to enter the Holy of Holies. They wrapped a rope around him and they put bells on the end of the rope so that as he walked in, they would know on the outside if he was still alive. If, if the bells were jingling, high priest is good. <laughs> if the bells stop jingling, he's dead, so pull him out with that rope that we tied him to. It's a hazardous way to make a living. It's not an easy job. It was not for the faint-hearted because the glory of God was not something to be messed with. So when John says that the word took on flesh and tabernacled among us, what do you think he's saying? What do you think he means? There is no temple anymore. As we saw in week one, the temple has been destroyed. There is no holy of holies. There is no ark of the covenant. There is no access to the presence of God. So Jesus came to be that access. He is the greater tabernacle. He is himself the greater temple. He is himself the high priest. He is himself the sacrifice who takes our wicked hearts that cannot be in the presence of God, washes them clean so that we can stand in his presence. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. I love how C.S. Lewis described this need for glory and need to be a part of it. He said, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with beauty, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. So when John says the word became flesh and took up residence among us so that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, he is saying that Christ has made a way for those longings to be realized. Meaning we don't just get to live next to the tent of meeting. We get invited into it so that now Somehow, in this mystical, vital way, we have become the temple of the glory of God. He doesn't just invite us to experience his glory. He makes us vessels of glory. So we don't just get to see the light. Now we are the light. 
As Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine among men so that they may see my glory. His glory is now in us. Guys, try to, try to wrestle with that in your minds. This is why Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3 that, that God would enlarge our hearts, that he would give us strength by his spirit so that we could possess his fullness there. So we don't just witness his glory, guys. We are being transformed. I love this. Paul says it better than anyone else in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And I don't think I have this on the screen, so I apologize. But you can look it up later, 2 Corinthians 3. We all, with unveiled face, and that's an allusion back to the veil that covered the Holy of Holies. We now, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. <laughs> we don't just witness it, we're being transformed into it. We possess it, we partake of it, experience, enjoy, whatever you want to say, whatever word it is now, we have been invited into the glory of God. That's the gospel, guys, and that's the best news that the world could ever hear. So now, when we think about the glory of God, we don't think about the terror of God. We think about the wonder of God and the love of God. Now, because of Christ, we see God's glory and God's love as the same thing. We're ushered into it, so now we no longer fall on our faces in fear, but now we do fall into his arms full of joy and praise and wonder. Our window into divine glories has filled our imaginations and ravished our hearts. See, when Jesus came to earth, he came to satiate our glory hunger. And he accomplished that by removing every obstacle that kept us from him and then inviting us into the sparkling light of his own radiance. So now, guys, the curtain has been torn. There is no longer separation. Our blindness has been replaced with sight. Our sin has been replaced with his righteousness. So now his transfigured glory can be felt in every single one of our hearts. There's something in us that's hardwired for it. We want to be swept off our feet in the splendor and beauty of creation. We have these sensors inside of us that go off when we're in the presence of greatness. We can't help but feel like we're a part of something special. We're chasing something that will take our breath away, that person, that place, that thing that we can only call Glorious. So my question for you today is, where are you looking for glory? Where are you in this chase? For every single one of us, may it be the glory of our King, once inaccessible, now our constant companion. Let's be captivated with wonder and awe at the glory of God in the face of Christ, and may we find rest for our souls.